Welcome to the Beacon Church Podcast. Each week we post a sermon from our last Sunday service so you can catch up, review, or share with your friends. We pray as you listen to this week's episode, you're encouraged and equipped to love God, love people, grow in Christ, and serve the world. Historians tell us that uh, it started some 4,000 years ago in uh, the land of Babylon. We uh, it was celebrated back then around March, and it was part of a 12-day religious festival called Akitu. And during that, they made promises to the gods to repay debts and to return anything that they have uh, borrowed, uh, which is a funny thing, I guess. Uh, but I guess that was a big thing back then. Then 2,000 years later, it shows up with a big splash in history around 46 BC. Julius Caesar of both Roman Empire and really truly delicious salad fame. He, um, he actually had a celebration. It was a few months earlier. And uh, they would make promises to have some good behavior for the uh, upcoming age. And uh, then in the Middle Ages... They, they take things like to a whole new level, right? And so they had the, the vow of the peacock. And so they would get a peacock and uh, they would, uh, you know, uh, uh, bring it in front of all of uh, the royal court and they would lay their hand upon the peacock's head and they would make the vow of the peacock, which I think we should totally bring back. And so um, if anybody has a lead on a peacock, please let me know. And so, uh, and in this vow, they would make, they would renew their chivalrous pledges for the upcoming year. But it wasn't until 1813 that the term New Year's resolution first was put into print. And of course, throughout history and around the world, and even at different parts of the calendar, depending on when you celebrate uh, the new year, Many, many people throughout history have been making resolutions towards some sort of better behavior. Now, majority of Americans also continue to make resolutions. Ours are mostly to lose weight, save money, eat healthier, spend some more time with uh, friends and family. And of course, my personal favorite, I try to make this every year, a, a vow to not make any more resolutions. Um, and so I do that largely till the next January, then I violate that. Well, in about two weeks, in about two weeks, 80% of our resolutions will be abandoned, which, I, I, you know, you could take that two ways. You could say, not me, or you could say, why waste the next two weeks struggling? Right, I mean, 80%, you know it's likely going to be the case. So, like, is the deprivation real? Anyway, so you, you figure out what to do with that information. Now, researchers tell us after many, many, many studies and absolutely tons of money, they have been researching this question, why do our resolutions fail? And they, they understand it now. And so you might, you, if this is an issue, for you, you may want to write this down. This is a big deal. Researchers tell us that many of our bad habits, like overeating and overspending, are very hard to quit. That's, that's the reason. So you should jot that down. They're very, because, you know, we didn't know that already, that they're very hard to quit. Yes, we understand that part. Help me figure out what to do about it. And largely they just say, well, you know, try harder, give it a shot, hope it works, but they're really hard to quit. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, if you are trying to rein in your spending a little bit or maybe, you know, lose a few pounds, 
failing in your resolutions may be discouraging. It might even be very discouraging for you. But what if you're fighting something more significant? What if you're fighting temptations that actually will jeopardize your job or maybe your life or your wife? Maybe your relationship with your spouse might very well be at stake or maybe it's with your kids. Maybe there's something flaring up inside you that's causing isolation and separation and for whatever reason, you just can't get a handle on it. Or worse, what if it's your relationship with God? What if you are battling temptations right now that are far more serious? Things that will have, they'll make a harsh, harsh blow on your emotional and your physical and your spiritual lives. Now the stakes are going up. And today we want to develop some biblical ideas about winning this very battle. Now, if you are a follower of Jesus, there is a struggle that you are a part of. It's actually a war that will rage within you, and you cannot follow Jesus without entering this battle. We're in this series, wait for it, and we're talking about, the, we're studying chapter 8 of Romans. And you can kind of get a sense of the tension here. There's a whole lot of back and forth going on. He says, and Christ lives within you. So even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead now lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. And you see, there's all of this sort of back and forth. There's life, there's death, there's a mortal body, but there's eternal life. And so we look at all of these kinds of things, and what we, what we have to stop and recognize is that this is inherent in the human experience. In fact, but, all right, so this is you. This is, your, this is your life. This is everything about you. This is your will. This is your body. This is your, your emotional makeup. It's, this is everything that makes you you right, uh, right here and now. From the very beginning, Genesis 3 of the Bible, we find out that this, these are, this is sin. These are corks. But, um, uh, and some of you, I realize, are going to wonder, how come I have so many corks? I just want to let you know that Trevor gave these to me. Um, and so corks equals sin. I'm not making any other statements or anything about that. But, but uh, and so actually I got it from Amazon. But, uh, uh, but anyway, so you get all these corks. And so the Bible tells that these sins, right? This is our sin. This is your sin nature. It's actual sins, but it's also more than that. It's, your, it's the thoughts that are going on. And it's the impulses that you have inside of you. And all of these are represented by what we're seeing in Romans 8 about the sin nature or the flesh. Uh, and so this idea of a sinful nature, this Bible tells us that you were actually born with a sinful nature. And so you never actually get to even start off as a clean break because from the very, very beginning, you have sin in you. And as this sin is sort of starting to manifest and you're growing up, we actually realize that there's more to it than just having a sin nature because the world itself, all around us, our dominant culture, everything that you've grown up and you've experienced, your family of origin, all of these things are actually adding to the damage of sin in your life. 
And so how you were raised and the kind of frustrations that grew up and the, and, and the, deprav- the kind of uh, the deprivation that you experienced, all of these things. And then you also find out that the culture around us is just looking for ways to, to press more and more sinful tendencies. But we also know, and this is kind of the, the, the hard part to really admit, but we actually know that we willingly embrace some of them. And we wish that wasn't the case, but the reality is we, we will often know that this particular thing is something that we should not do, we should not say, we shouldn't think about, we shouldn't let our body do, and yet we still do. And so we start to add these sins that are already latent in us into our lives. Now, here's the kicker. I know sin isn't a word we often use, but think of it as anything that God doesn't want in you. His longing and desire for you is to be clean and pure because he knows that that is what will bring about your ultimate flourishing both here and for eternity. It means that you won't be doing harm to yourself, that's what this is, or harm to others because these things leak out into the world around you. And so we get this immediate sense of tension. I mean, this is actually, right, even this. So even though... It's even though this stuff, we're hoping for this stuff. Even though there's life, there's still death. Back and forth, back and forth, this text continues to go because the struggle is real. There is absolutely no way. We are caught between these two worlds, these two realms, these two ages that are fiercely battling for supremacy in your life. And sin and the world and Satan, they are not going to play nice. And neither will a follower of Jesus. But I'm getting ahead of myself for just a minute. So anyway, a couple of interesting theological questions. So we're going to do a little bit of theology here this morning, but they arise from a text like this. And so one of the the interesting things happens is when you look at a text like this, it says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And so what I'm going to be calling you to is an active Uh, participation in getting rid of the sins in your body because that's what you need to do. But, But who's doing it? Is it you or is it the Spirit doing it? So is the Spirit doing this work in you or are you doing this work? And so people look at this as kind of a tension. They're like, well, who's doing it? Who's responsible for this? Who's supposed to take up this fight? Shouldn't I just wait and let the Spirit do it? And of course, the answer is both. The way the scriptures position this is that you will not have victory over sin in your life without the work of the Spirit. And the Spirit will not do this work without your struggle, without your participation in it. That's how the scriptures paint it. Now, for those of you who have studied these ideas a bit, will notice that we're starting to brush up against this theological debate about God's sovereignty and human free will, one that is notably absent in the teachings at Beacon, which over the years has frustrated uh, a number of people. But this is kind of an interesting text for us to delve into some of the, the reasoning and rationality, because the other theological question that has challenged Christian scholars for centuries will often appear again in these texts, because it says... If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And so what this does is it puts the responsibility, the onus of living in the the spirit versus the flesh on you, which also 
puts the responsibility for your salvation in your hands. And so a lot of people go back and forth on these ideas. And so depending on your, your theological construct will, will depend on whether you emphasize one side of this conversation, this debate, or the other. So I'm going to simplify it almost to the point of absurdity, but I've got to simplify here for just a few moments. Think of it as there being two groups. One is called the Arminians and one are called the Calvinists. And so there's a little bit of theology, but the Arminians would tell you that a verse like this is the one that holds dominant sway over the rest of the Scriptures. They believe that you will be able to lose your salvation. So if you wander or if you drift too far, then you should be concerned because you will actually die just like this text says. You'll be eternally separated from God because you refused to live in the Spirit. Now, they would also interpret other texts in light of texts like this and say other texts that are hard to understand in that light, they all got to be they all got to be put under this kind of an idea. This is the dominant idea. Calvinists will say, no, 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 this can't be the, the dominant idea because if you go back a few verses to verse 10, it says that you have been made right with God. And if you go to the end of the chapter, it says that nothing in this world can separate you from the love of God. Are you in this world? And you go, yes, I'm in this world. And they go, then you also cannot separate yourself from God. So not even you. So you, once you become a Christian, once you are saved, in the language we always used to use, then you are forever saved. Now, back and forth, back and forth, these groups and churches will have continued to argue. Again, this is almost recklessly brief here. So why is it that Beacon has not spent more time settling on what our actual position is, teaching what it is that I know and I think that the Scriptures best teach, and why is it that we seem at different times to be t teaching something that feels a little bit more in one camp or a little bit in the other. And I think it is because the Bible emphasizes both of these truths. And now some of you immediately, if you're more theologically minded, you're saying, yes, but you can't just do that. You have to pick. You can't be illogical. You can't hold to two different positions. And I don't think that I am. I do believe that the Bible says that once a person accepts Jesus as Savior, they can have complete assurance of their salvation. They don't have to worry. They don't have to fret. They don't have to think that they're going to lose their salvation. They don't have to be worried. They don't have to live in shame and guilt or anything like that anymore. And I also think that you could be certain that if you continue to live according to the flesh and that you refuse to do battle against your sin nature, you will forever be separated from God. That's what we see. That's what's taught. Now, the reason I refuse to let Beacon fall aggressively into one camp or the other and sort of do the whole of our ministry around these ideas is not because I haven't decided personally. I am actually a Calvinist. For those who count points, a full five-pointer. So if you know, you know. But it, it seems to me that Calvinism answers more of the texts better and introduces far less difficult uh, challenges to the overall ideas, the overall arch of Scripture and theology uh, than Arminianism. But I don't think that these passages are actually trying to develop a theological construct at all. And I think that's part of the problem, is why it continues to trouble churches one way or the other. I don't think this is about Christian theology. I think it's about Christian experience. Because rarely is a person 100% sure of where they are at with Jesus for all of their life. 
It's just, it's a rare experience. So in my case, I had come to faith when I was very, very young. It was probably at a vacation Bible school, so tutos, you know, big cheer for all of you who help out in next-gen ministries. It was probably when I was in vacation Bible school, but, you know, maybe not. I was a kid. I was young. I was seven, eight, nine years, something like that. But then I got in a youth group, and it, we were, it, was, we were, it was rocket, man. We had an awesome time. I was doing street evangelism in Newark. We were having all sorts of fun. I went up for every single altar call, I think, for like three years running. And so if some of you have been in the Pentecostal circle, you know what I'm talking about because just, I just kept going up just to be sure um, that uh, I had not accidentally slipped out, lost salvation or anything like that. And so I was back in. I was solid. In those days, they would have said, you were on fire. I was on fire spiritually, and it was awesome. And, and people would have said I was on a trajectory towards something, maybe even ministry. There had even been a couple of moments where people said, you know, this would be... And then I left the faith entirely for years. Entirely. Was I a believer? I don't know. It depends on your theological construct. If you're Arminian, you'd say, no, you lost your salvation. Good thing you got it back. Or you might say, no, 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 you were. You were backslidden. Calvinists love that. We used to use that word a lot too. You were backslidden. Thank God you came back. But of course you would have because you, what, you had no choice. And so we have all of these kind of theology. I don't know where I was or when I became a follower of Jesus over the course of these 10 years. I don't know. But my experience was that there were seasons where I was 100% sure because I was living as best I understood it in the power of the Spirit, in the realm of the Spirit. And there were other times where I was living 100% in the flesh, and I'm so glad I did not die back then. And so this tension exists, but every single Christian has had an experience like this where we go from one direction to the other. And at times we need the comfort that says you are secure in Christ, and at other times we need a challenge that says you should check what's really going on in your heart and really going on in your life. I was told many, many years ago that the role of a pastor is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And I thought, yes, that's what I'm going to do. And so if you're super comfortable in living in sin, then do not expect comfort from me. And if you are struggling with sin and feeling guilt and shame and feeling like God can't love you, then I'm going I'm to bring the full weight of the protection and security of the gospel into your life because I think that's what the Bible does because it's talking about our Christian experience. Again, the brevity with which I'm explaining these complex theological positions, it's like bordering on theological malpractice. But, um, but if theology, theology is super important to you, I would love to grind through all of these texts with you. We can go out and grab a coffee or drinks or something like that. Anyway, here, the shift now allows us to feel the weight of scriptures like this. Now we get to think of it and go, this is how we actually experience our journey. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. No obligation. If you live by its dictates, you will die. That should terrify you. But if, through the power of the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. So put to death the sinful nature. We call that mortification of the flesh. It's an old term, but it is a great term. And what, what we're doing in this is we're attempting to try to pull out some of these things. We're trying to rip them out of our lives. We're trying to say, okay, I found this one. Here's a little bit of greed. I got to get rid of that thing. And so that's out of here, right? And so, and the reason this is so important is because the, and the verbal construct in this text is so important because it says, listen, you need to keep doing this. You need to keep killing. It's a continuous thing. And it isn't something that's simply done to you you have to do it. It is your responsibility. So you reach in there and you try to pull some of these things out. But here's the thing. As you're doing that, others are getting dropped in. 
So here's the tension, because you're like, wait a second, I just, that just got in, I gotta get it out? You know, like, what am I supposed to do? It's like this. Like, you know, this could be exhausting. You could be like, what is going on? And you're just trying, I'm like, you're like, I, are two going in? Now I gotta rip two out? That's gonna be, what am I doing? So it feels like this, but here's the thing, you, th you say to yourself, well, that's an exhausting part of the Christian life. Well, in part, it can, it can be exhausting in seasons. It can also be unbelievably liberating, but this is the problem, if you do nothing, this is what happens. It's still going. You think because you've taken a week off, a month off, a year off from your journey with Jesus that, that the world flesh and the devil are doing the same thing? Absolutely not. So you're actually getting filled up more and more in the realm of the flesh and you're becoming way more comfortable living in this because you have stopped doing battle, stopped mortifying the flesh. It has been well said, Christian, you must be killing sin or it will be killing you. Now, here are some tips from John Owens and Tim Keller, Thomas Brooks, and John Piper, and some others. A battle plan to kill sin before it kills you. If there's brilliant stuff in this, it is from those guys that I just mentioned. If there is stuff that seems confusing or wrong, I added that. And so, there is a battle plan. So, first, we need to wrestle with the severity of sin. And so what ends up happening is we look at a lot of these sins and some we reach in there, we're like, oh, this is terrible. This sort of a thing in my life, I got to rip that thing out of here. And so you do. But there are other things we look at and we're like, I mean, is that really sin? You know, you kind of sort of know it and someone throws something in here and you, right, they cut you off on the, on the road and you're like, me getting upset before I let that anger in there, they, they're jerks. They're supposed to be in there. These are terrible people that did terrible things. This is justice. And so we take things that we ought to be identifying as sin and we wrap them up in virtue. We paint them in pretty colors. Or we say, listen, I just dealt with this massive issue. I ripped this terrible sin out of my life. I finally beat that addiction. I finally cut off that relationship. And so, you know, four or five extra hours on social media is something I deserve. And so we make these exchanges thinking because we've ripped out some big things. We take some little things and we don't understand where these little things are going to go to. When they get in here, these little, so-called little ones, they're, they're colluding with the rest of them. They're creating some very toxic and dangerous things deep in the soul. They're kind of hiding in the little nooks and crannies. And they're going to build out over the course of time. We can't allow any of them. You see, we do not take the severity of sin far enough. We have to recognize that we take it too lightly or we too quickly rely on the forgiveness that we know is ours because of the cross. And we don't wrestle with how horrific sin really is when it is rooted in the human heart. We forget that it grieves the Holy Spirit. It makes us less useful for the kingdom of God. Thomas Brooks, one of these old Puritans, he powerfully draws our attention to the importance of never minimizing our sin by reminding us what our sin cost Jesus. It's an extended passage. I want to read it to you. I don't know that it's been said better. He says, even those very sins that Satan paints and puts new names and colors upon cost the best blood, the noblest blood, the life blood, the heart blood of the Lord Jesus. That Christ should come from the eternal bosom of the Father to a region of sorrow and death, that God should be manifested in the flesh. In Jesus, the creator made a creature, that he who was clothed with glory should be wrapped with rags of flesh, 
He who filled heaven and earth with his glory should be cradled in a manger? That the God of the law should be subjected to the law? The God of the circumcision circumcised? That he who binds the devils in chains should be tempted? That he who's in the world and the fullness thereof should hunger and thirst? That the God of strength should be weary? The judge of all humanity condemned, the God of life put to death, that he who is one with his father should cry out of misery, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That he who had the keys of hell and death should lie imprisoned in the tomb of another, having in his lifetime nowhere to lay his head, nor after death to lay his body. That that head before which angels do cast down their crowns should be crowned with thorns, and those eyes purer than the sun put out by the darkness of death, those ears which hear nothing but hallelujahs of saints and angels to hear blasphemies of the multitudes, that face which was fairer than all the sons of men to be spit on, the mouth and tongue which spoke as never a man spoke accused for blasphemy, those hands which, which freely swayed the scepter of heaven nailed to the cross, those feet like unto fine brass nailed to the cross for man's sin, each sense pained with a spear and nails, his smell with stinking odor being crucified on Golgotha, the place of skulls, his taste with vinegar and gall, his hearing with reproaches, his sight of his mother and disciples bemoaning him, his soul comfortless and forsaken. And all this, for those very sins that Satan paints and puts fine colors upon. Oh, how should the consideration of this stir up the soul against sin and work the soul to fly from it and to use all holy means whereby sin may be subdued and destroyed. He is calling us to hate sin for what it cost, for what it cost our beautiful Savior. Wrestle with the severity of it. And then ruthlessly resist sinful practices and thoughts. You know, we got to not let them in. And so, you know, you, you, you see something coming in. You know how these things come. You want to, like, block it. Right? You're going to do everything you can. You're going to be like, nope, that's not happening. You're like, you know what? I know on every Friday night after happy hour, bad things happen. I'm not going to be doing that anymore. And so you're looking for ways to stop these things. You're ruthlessly. You're looking at it from the very beginning of the moment when it barely looks like a sin. And you're praying for the sensitivity to see these things and to, do, to wage battle while they're still in the infancy stage before they can collude and, and join up forces with the rest of the, the, the sinful patterns that are in our lives. And so you want to ruthlessly, you want to, you want to take them, you want to look at them, you want to understand them. You want to say, what is it about me? What is it about my upbringing? What is it about my family of origins that's making this temptation a consistent source of failure to me? You want to go after this with precision and with aggression. You don't, this isn't a haphazard sort of a thing. You want to understand them. You want to understand yourself. And you want to treat these sins with disdain. That's what Jesus was talking about, right? When he said, you've got to, if, you're, if, you, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. People are like, was this like, that's strong. Obviously, he doesn't mean gouge out your eyes. You gouge out one eye, you have the other to sin with. You gouge out both eyes, you still can sin in your brain. Like, it, it, he obviously doesn't mean you, but he's, he wants to ex express to us the ferocity with which you are reaching in and you are struggling with these sins to rip them out of your life and to stop them from getting in. This is the, the power 
that we're meant to bring to this conversation. Now, as soon as we say that, we have to recognize that there's a risk here. Because as soon as you start doing battle, you have a whole other set of sins that start coming in, right? This is the Pharisees. This is self-righteousness. This is judgment of others. This is, hey, wow, I'm doing really good. They're not. You know, and these kinds of sins actually accumulate way faster than some of the other sins of the flesh, the pride of life kinds of things. And so as soon as you start really doing battle with sin and you start making some progress, it is very, very easy to start stockpiling other types of sins. In fact, lots of movies and other conversations have been made just about this very issue, how readily we think we're making progress, but in the end, we're actually doing more harm to the soul. And so we have to be careful with this rigidity sort of an idea, and that leads us to forcing your sin into the presence of Jesus. Now, we rarely want to do this because now as we start dealing with these sins and we start seeing the awfulness of them and we take them seriously and we're watching how vile and destructive these kinds of things are in our lives, all of a sudden, we just want them, we just want them covered up. We don't want to like, you know, it's like, hey, Jesus, look. Like, you know, look, I want, you want to take this out and be like, hey, I want to go to my Savior and, and, and I'm thinking about Thomas Brooks and I'm thinking about what it cost him and now I got to bring this to him and be like, so... I know what you did for me, but this is what I've been playing with lately. Here's my 30 pieces of silver, Jesus. Here's what it cost for me. And so our temptation is to not do that. And we just want to hide them. We want to stuff them down. We want to push them into other nooks and crannies. But here, pro tip, ready? Pro tip. Jesus already sees them. He already knows. You ain't hiding anything from him. He already sees, in fact, this is what he died for. What you are doing when you force these out into the open, you are bringing your sin, the wholeness and fullness of your depravity before a Savior that is offering you hope and grace and forgiveness. You are forcing these sins, these thought patterns, these activities, these behaviors, you're forcing them to the foot of the cross where actually Jesus can do battle against them with you by pouring out his grace, his forgiveness, by showing you the power that you do not have in yourself. This is why we need the Spirit doing the work with us or we will become arrogant people. Tim Keller, he says that many Christians try to control themselves with law-centered mini-sermons. We say things like, if I do that, God will get me. It'll hurt the people around me. I'll be embarrassed. It will hurt my self-esteem. I'll hate myself in the morning. All of those things may be true, he says, but it is inadequate. They don't kill sin. That is taking your temptation to the law and using fear to deter yourself. There is only limited power and lasting ability for that to happen. Your will eventually exhausts. You need to change the very motivations themselves, which are their own version. You might take out a couple of behaviors, but you got to go after the motivations that brought you there. And you will do that by bringing these things, forcing these sinful patterns, sinful nature before the cross so that you can rest in front of Jesus in all of his grace and mercy and forgiveness. And it will not give you a license to sin. It will rather give you the power to wage war against your sinful nature. Now, the last step here is to be filled with the Spirit of Christ because your will, your soul, your life, your behaviors, they're all tainted with sin. Sin is now freeloading in your soul. It's taking up residence. It's mucking up your life and your experience of God and your relationship. And here's the thing. You can fight it 
and you ought to. You got to reach in there and rip it out. You got to look in the nooks and crannies as best as you can. And we constantly will have more going in like we had said earlier. And so this ongoing continual battle is what you need to engage in. But there is a powerful tool for us to change the, 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 the dynamic, the power dynamic, and it has to do with being filled with the Spirit because, of course, and you knew something was coming because there's like a contraption and all that, and so the power of the Spirit, you're looking at filling yourself up because the Spirit does things in you that you are not able to do yourself. And so when you're filled with the Spirit, when you're turning your attention towards spiritual things, when, when you're reflecting, when you're worshiping, and when you're praying, all of a sudden things start to get a little closer to the surface. The power of the Spirit gets inside of you, and these things now get a little bit easier to see. They, things get cleaned up in there, and all of a sudden, seeing the, the, the darkness, seeing the sin becomes a little bit easier. It's starting to, to clear out some of the little nooks and crannies there in the bottom where some deep sins might long have been resting, and we see the Spirit start to fill up the human soul in such a great way that all of a sudden we're watching the whole of this thing shift and move with a power that isn't even your own. How do you fill yourself up with the Spirit? You start to read the Scriptures and you start to reflect on the power of Jesus. You surround yourself uh, with Christian community and as you start to see victory, you're like, oh my goodness, like I'm actually seeing, I have more access, I see more things and you bring them to the cross and now you get excited because you're like, this is actually how I can succeed here. This is how I can win. This isn't just about my willpower, which always fails. This is about a whole transition, a whole shift in me. And so you're like, I need some bigger guns. And so you go in there and you're like, I need real power. And so you're like, you know, I want all of the spirit I can get. And before you know it, all of a sudden, you know, you start to see the, the power of the spirit just press these things out of your life. And, and this is one of these moments where it's so exciting because as you start to see some things just start to fall away, and other things just on the surface, and they're a whole lot easier. They don't have the kind of roots that they used to have. You start to experience more and more of who you were meant to be and how you were meant to live, and your values start getting rewritten. And old things that used to bother you and tempt, tempt you and make you stumble and fall, they're just not even big issues anymore because the Spirit, and here's the thing, the Spirit is ferociously jealous of its real estate. Ferociously jealous. And that's to our great advantage Spirit doesn't want to share your soul with anything else. His longing and his desire is to glorify Christ in you, to clean you up and out in all of these perfect ways so that you can experience more of the presence of Jesus. And here's the kicker. Now things want to get in, and all of a sudden it gets a whole lot harder because now you're like, oh, wait, look, it's already full. And so suddenly, you know, as the Spirit is working in you, some of them can stick occasionally, and then other times they just sort of fall to the wayside. And the Scriptures continue to promise this to us again and again. In fact, it tells us that eventually what's going to end up happening is that we're going to be living so powerfully in the realm of the Spirit that one day our whole of our lives will be transformed. And when Jesus returns, we will be made holy and pure. And we will live for him in all of eternity in a resurrected body with no sin in us in any way. This is the promise. This is the hope that he gives to us. He tells us there's no condemnation, that you belong to Christ, that you will forever be in his presence. And not only will you live the life that he has called you to live now, and not, not only will you represent him well in this world, but one day, one day, all of this will be wrapped up and you will dwell forever in the presence of 
of your God and your Savior who desperately loves you. This ought to give us what we need for the fight. Let's pray. Father, we're asking that you would, in each of our lives, help us to create a battle plan for waging war against the sin nature, for doing everything, Lord, that we can as we wait and we trust in you, for playing our part as we trust that the Spirit will play his part, for knowing, Lord, fully and completely, for trusting, taking our sin, knowing that there is forgiveness at the cross and that it costs the precious blood of Christ. And let that cause us to flee from sin, Lord, not because you are angry, but, Father, because you loved us so deeply. Lord, you gave us the presence of the Spirit so that we might know you and walk with you and be assured that one day you will bring us home. Father, that's what we want for each person here, Lord. Give them the the strength, Lord, to trust you in this, to turn our hearts again and again so that we might be fully filled with the Spirit, that we might worship, that we might pray, that we might read, that we might, we might join up with other followers of Christ, that we might challenge our sin, that we might surrender it to you, Lord, that we might live in the power, the promise of your presence. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. If you enjoyed the sermon, want to learn more about Jesus, or get to know our community, please visit beacon.church to get connected. We would love to hear from you.